6. We're moving through the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount now, and as we come to chapter 6, well, we covered a few verses of it two Sundays ago, but here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is addressing basically the hypocrites who were the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, those who considered themselves to be better than others, those who would love to show off how spiritual they were. And we have people like that nowadays, and I think we can all, over a period of time as we've walked with the Lord, there's a danger of us falling into this hypocritical sort of mentality where our Christianity is something that we practice on the outside rather than a reality that's on the inside. And so Jesus here addresses several of the areas in which their hypocrisy pops up. And beginning in verse 1, he said, "'Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds.'" Um, literally, that just means your righteousnesses. The King James translates it alms and, and equates it to just giving to the poor. But really what he's talking about is ministry. It's anything that you do right for the Lord. Take heed that you don't do it before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly." He, he says here, when you're going to do something for the Lord, and specifically something that you're doing for other people, make sure that you don't do it in order to be seen by them. The Greek word there is the same word that we get theatrical from. It's the idea of don't make a big show of what you're going to do for people. Now, in those days, and he's not exaggerating, the hypocrites would, would blow a trumpet. And the reason they would do it, ostensibly, was that when someone was going to hand out goods to the poor or they were going to do something for the poor, they wanted to make sure that the poor people knew it was time. And so they would blow a trumpet or ring a bell or they would do something in order to, to let people know that, okay, this is the time. But gradually it became a status symbol and they would make a bigger and bigger deal about it. And the idea was, I'm doing it for you, but I'm really noticing what people think of me. And I think for all of us, we have this struggle within our lives, whether it's by giving something to someone, whether it's doing something for someone, because it's impossible for us to completely put our flesh aside and not realize that other people are noticing what we're doing, not realizing that people are aware of what's happening. And the idea that he's teaching here is, if at all possible, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now, that's not literal. And there are people who have applied this to giving and say, you should never even calculate how much you're giving or you shouldn't keep you know, tithe records or anything like It's not the idea of just your hand sticking in there, grabbing whatever comes out, and, and you don't even know what it is. But the idea is, don't do it as a show. Don't do it for the sake of the people around you. And, I mean, you know how it is. You know people are watching. 
You know people see what you're doing, and it's really hard to completely remove that from our consciousness. How much of the good things that we do for people, we do it, and we really want to be noticed. In fact, if you're doing something nice for someone and they don't say thank you, or they don't, in return, do something nice for you, how do you feel? How do you feel if you do something for someone and they just don't notice at all? They completely take it for granted. Well, for most of us, we start to question whether or not we really ought to be doing it. You know, listen to your mom. I mean, not every mom, but it, it's so easy for moms to be taken for granted because they're always there, they're always doing things for people. And every once in a while, it just boils over. You know, you just never say thank you. Or if you give a gift to someone and they don't give a gift to you, it's like, that's it. A lot of people keep their Christmas card list that way based on who they get a card back from. So next year, you send cards to the people that sent them to you. It's a nice way of bookkeeping, but it's really not the spirit in which we are to give, in which we are to do things. It should be, I want to bless other people, and if they don't even know, so much the better. The implication here is, because he says that, you know, they... Uh, he says, when you do a charitable deed, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you. Before that, he says, they have their reward. So the idea is if you do something for someone and you get some attention for it, that's probably, that may be the extent of your reward. Now, how, it may be a ripoff in a way because I feel like as a pastor, for instance, there's no way I can get up here and teach the Bible without you noticing. And so I don't expect that if I maybe sometimes teach a great Bible study and you get really blessed, I don't expect to in heaven get rewards for that because I get rewards here. People come up and say, boy, that really changed my life. That's really nice. And I don't want to lay a trip on you and say, you know, you're ripping me off of my reward by saying that you enjoyed the study. But in reality, I think for all of us, it's a challenge to find ways of serving God, find ways of blessing people without them having any way of ever knowing who did it. Have you ever had someone do something for you and you just thought, I wish I knew who did it. Who gave this to me? Who left this message for me? Who gave me this card? And you start to compare handwriting samples with other things that you have and you want to hunt them down. But in the meantime, what happens? Well, you kind of have to be extra nice to everyone around you because one of them might have been the one who blessed you with whatever it is that they gave you. And that's sort of the idea. If we really want to know, well, God's the one who's blessing us. And if we really want people to know, ultimately, I want you to know how much God loves you, then we want to do things for people in a way that makes him look good rather than in a way that makes us look good. And in a way, you can't have it both ways. The more attention that's drawn to a person, the less attention that's drawn to the Lord. That's why John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Because we have to get out of the way so people can see God. So the challenge for us here is when we do good things, we can't escape completely. And, I, and don't say that, you know, don't get in your mind, oh man, you know, one of the things I love about teaching Sunday school is parents come up and every once in a while they'll say, boy, what a blessing you are to my kids. So as a result of that, don't just say, I'm not going to teach Sunday school anymore. I'm only going to do things that are totally secretive. 
look at Jesus as he was doing good things for people, as he was healing people, throwing demons out of them and everything. People knew, gave him credit. When he fed 5,000, they certainly knew where the food was coming from. But the idea here is the motive of my heart should not be the applause of men. It shouldn't be a theatrical production. I shouldn't have one eye on God and one eye on the audience. But in reality, better if people could see how good God is and they don't notice me at all. I remember years ago when I was in college, Corey Ten Boom came and spoke at our college at our university at Biola. And the gym was completely full of people, probably close to 3,000 people there. And, and Corey Ten Boom was just a hero to a lot of us, amazing woman. And, and she was old at the time and could barely walk. And she toddled in the door and there was a standing ovation and people were just, here's this little tiny lady and people were just hooping and hollering, going nuts. You can imagine that many college students. And she got up to the microphone and she began to wave her little hands and said, stop it, stop it right now. And we're like, what? And she said, if I cannot hide behind the cross of Jesus Christ right now, then I'm going right back out that door. And we're like, okay, okay, <laughs> you know, go ahead. Don't. But that's so much the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. Are we to do good for others? Jesus says later that that's how you can tell if you're really his child. That's how you can tell if you love him if you're doing things. But I think we need to consciously, for our own benefit and for our own reward's sake, to try to bless people in a way that they don't know who did it. To try to do things that no one else will notice. I, years ago, there was a guy at Calvary who um, was a body and fender guy. And his name was Warren. He since went to be with the Lord. But one time I was walking around the parking lot with him, just patrolling the parking lot during an evening service. And there was a car with a dent in it about this big and about four or five inches deep. And he goes, Dave, watch this. And he started pounding his fist on the metal and he knew how to do it just in a way and boom, it just popped out. And I go, look at that, it looks brand new. I said, are you gonna leave a note? He goes, no, 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 I think it'll be funnier that they'll come out and think God healed their car. <laughs> and he just walked off smiling. But how much, maybe we don't know how to do body and fender work, but how many opportunities do we take to just do something good just so that people can feel like, well, this is my lucky day. God has blessed me. Look at what happened, and I don't even know who to thank. Well, yeah, you do. You can thank God. You can be grateful to him. He goes on as he talks, secondly, after saying, don't be a hypocrite in the way you do your ministry. Then he says, don't be a hypocrite in the way that you pray. And we went over this two Sundays ago, but we'll just read it. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly." And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So he says, in your prayers, don't make it a production. If I feel, if I, sometimes we have to pray in front of people. Sometimes we pray with other people. But if people come up and say, that was the most beautiful prayer, Pastor, I feel like, Oh, yuck. That's not really what I want to hear from somebody who agrees with me in prayer. 
I mean, and I, it's, a, it's a tough balance sometimes. But, and often as a police chaplain, I get called to go pray for some non-sectarian ceremony of some kind. And it's so difficult for me because I don't plan my prayers. I don't think what I'm going to say. And at the same time, often they'll give you some restrictions and, and give you some preferences. I never listen to them. I figure if they get mad at me, I won't have to come back again. And so, you know, I just let it go anyway. I just go and pray. And I hear some people when they're up in front of people, and it really is beautiful. But I wonder if we pray a really beautiful prayer, if it isn't sort of counterproductive, if it isn't something that takes away from the intimacy of the moment. Uh, sometimes it's the difference between having a conversation with a close friend and writing a paper for a teacher. Different styles, different approaches completely. But if it's my friend, I don't plan what I'm going to say. If I'm talking to you and I'm working from a script, you're probably going to go, what's wrong with you? And, and so for God, we're, he's our dad. He's our father in heaven. We don't need to try to impress him. And certainly, we shouldn't be impressing anyone else who happens to be eavesdropping on the conversation. That's just foreign to what the idea of prayer is and this pridefulness in praying. Praying is, by definition, saying, help. I need help. How do you do that pridefully? How do you see a beggar strutting around, acting like, yep, I'm the best bum on the street? It's not... It's a contradiction in terms to have prideful prayer. And to think that for, if you use enough words or if you put, make it fancy enough or you take on a... Well, I said I wasn't going to preach my two weeks ago sermon and I just did. But you can get the tape if you want to hear more about that. One thing, he says, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And that begs the question, then why do we pray? He already knows what we want. Well, what he, the point he's trying to make here is that you don't need to give him all the details of the situation. The point in prayer is not to keep God informed. Okay, God, uh, it's time for you to have another briefing from me on what's going on in my life. And that's his point. But God, even though he reads our mind, even though he knows what we need way better than we do, he desires to have us pray. And there are several reasons for it. One of them is he wants to talk with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. If your husband or your wife looks in your eyes and says, honey, I, I love you so much, do you look back and say, yeah, I know, you've told me that before? <laughs> no, you like hearing it. If your kids say, dad, mom, I love you, and they give you a hug, do you go, of course, I know you love me. I've trained you to do that. Or do you say, you know, you can't say it too many times. I love hearing you say it. And God just loves to spend time with us. Oh, a lot of times, and I find this true as I get older, you get together with friends, you start telling stories, it's, we tell the same old stories sometimes, and it, in my memory, it's not, I'm telling it for the first time, but sometimes you can just <laughs> see the look on somebody's face, it's like, I'm telling them a joke, they already know the punchline, I know it, but that's okay, we're together, hanging out together, and the older we get, well, we'll all forget them, and so then it'll be like it's new every time. But that's what God desires from us. But also, when we pray, it changes our heart. Because God promises to give us the desires of our heart. And so sometimes, God wants me to pray so that as I hear myself, I can start to, as the Holy Spirit intercedes, as, as 
you know, this process is happening where I'm working through the things for which I'm asking God, then I notice my prayers change. I pray something and then think, well, that's really stupid. So I change it a little bit. And prayer a lot of times isn't just a way of changing what God's going to do. Although there's an element of that. James says you have not because you ask not. I don't understand that theologically, but I believe it because the Bible says it. But beyond that, I notice prayer changes me a lot. It also helps me to get it off my chest. It helps me as I've given it to him consciously. I've handed it to him. Now I can trust him to answer that prayer. And then as we pray, we get the joy of seeing God do things and the excitement of answered prayer. And then, of course, I'm encouraged when other people are praying for me. It just shows they care for me. They're on the same wavelength. And so when someone comes up and says, let me pray for you, and they pray for me, I am blessed. So a lot of reasons for praying, but what we know for sure from this is one of them isn't so that we can give God the latest news, so that we can kind of keep him posted. Then he goes into this beautiful sample prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really not his prayer. It's ours. He gave it to us. And a few things, we can't get too bogged down in it. We talked about it a little, a couple Sundays ago too. But it's a prayer that kind of gives to his people, here's the idea of how you should be praying. But having said that, I have to say as well, that there is something about the way this prayer is worded that's interesting to me and fascinating the more I think about it. And, I, and I'm not a, you know, one of these Catholics that's always, you know, praying or a denominational person and have, I don't have the Lord's Prayer on a locket and I don't recite it like a mantra instead of the prayer of Jabez or something. But at the same time, I have to admit that it's interesting to me that Jesus here in the beginning of his ministry prayed this prayer and two years later, According to the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. By the way, it's the only thing the disciples ever asked to be taught about. And they said, teach us to pray. And he prayed this exact same prayer. So there's something about it that we ought to take notice of. And I don't believe that his, his thing on vain repetition would cause us to not recite the Lord's Prayer or to sing it as Often, I know at Calvary, we used to always sing it at the end of the church service. That can be repetitious if you do it in a vain way, if you're not even thinking about it. But at the same time, it can be deeply meaningful. One of the things that I think is striking about the Lord's Prayer is it doesn't fit the formula of most of the prayers that people teach us. This is how you ought to pray. Every few years, someone comes up with a formula for prayer. You know, whether it's Jabez or a few years before it was praying your way into the tabernacle, the, into the outer court and going to the laver and confessing and to, you know, the sacrifice and the inner and then the inner, inner. And all. This doesn't fit that kind of formula or any other prayer formula, except that what you notice is a couple of things that to me are striking. For one thing, the prayer is almost exclusively petition. You get the idea, and by the way, if you ever do a study where you look at all the prayers of Jesus and all the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, you'll find that if you start to categorize them, and I've done this, it's amazing, like 90, 95% of the prayers are about asking for things. That's what prayer is by definition. So it's not that you can't worship in your prayer. It's not that you can't praise him. It's not that you can't do other things. They may very well fit, but 
If you end up that your whole prayer is just going through all this rigmarole and you never get around to asking him for things, then you've missed the point of prayer. And again, I quote James again, you have not because you ask not. Jesus begins by acknowledging our Father in heaven. He, he's pointing out, and this is something that would have been completely foreign to those people in those days. The, the hypocrites, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, oh, they wouldn't pray to our Father. God being your Father, that's blasphemous. But Jesus, of course, the Son of God, ushers in and explains to us a whole new relationship whereby we can come to God not as this distant deity that's off, way off into space, but although he is transcendent, although he's everywhere, yet he's personal. He's our Father, and yet he's in heaven. The eminence and transcendence of God, theologians call that. He's right here, so close, so intimate, and yet he's overall as well. And so he's addressing God in a way that doesn't put God down, like our Father and best buddy, but it's, not. it's our Father who's in heaven, acknowledging both truths. And then he prays, his first petition is, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. May it be separated. It's basically a prayer that says, God, may people see you for who you are. May they understand who you are and, and see your glory the way that you are. And he goes on to say, may your kingdom come. I desire for you to do on this earth what your will is in heaven. And again, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole book of Matthew in some ways is about the kingdom of heaven. And so he's praying, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, right now, the earth is in a state of rebellion. All the rest of the universe is in conformity to you and your word. And yet, because you delegated to man the running of the earth, and because man sold it out to Satan, who's now the prince of the power of the air, this little piece of the universe, this earth, well, things aren't the way they're supposed to be here. And God, we need for your kingdom, your will to happen down here because we're a mess. We're in trouble. Give us this day our daily bread. A simple request, probably for physical food. Now, he doesn't say, give us this day our next three years bread, or God help us today to have six months income put away in a savings account or something like that. It's give us this day our daily bread. That word for daily actually refers to tomorrow. So that is okay. What he's basically saying literally is, give us today bread for tomorrow. Take care of tomorrow. We need to be fed. And he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He goes on after the prayer to kind of elaborate on this, but basically it's a prayer for forgiveness. It's God, we owe you big time. Lord, please forgive us the debt that we owe you. And in turn, we'll forgive others as well. It's a promise to do that and a request for that. And do not lead us into temptation. Now, I could go on and on about this, but we would never make it through the Sermon on the Mount ever. Do not lead us into temptation. We often, the word there means testing, 
The Bible says that God doesn't tempt us, and then Jesus says, don't lead us into temptation. Well, God leads us wherever we go if we listen to him. And sometimes where he's called us to go is through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes difficulties. But also grammatically here, this could be translated that where it says, um, do not lead us into temptation. It could be translated, do not allow us to be led into temptation. And I'm convinced that we get sucked into a lot of temptation that we could have avoided. As Paul tells Timothy, flee those youthful lusts. And we, could, we put ourselves in a situation where all of a sudden we're tempted with something that had we not gotten into that situation, it wouldn't have happened. And so it's the prayer. Although, you know, Jesus was tempted in everything that we are yet without sin. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who won't allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. No matter where you get yourself, no matter how you got there, the temptation is there. It can be the greatest, most horrible, awful temptation you could ever imagine. There's always a way out. There's always a way of escape. And yet Jesus is here praying, you know, it'd be great if you would lead us in a way that we could avoid most of those. We don't want to go out of our way to be tempted. We don't want to say, you know, God is always there during the temptation. So I'm thinking it would be kind of a cool thing. I mean, I've been walking with the Lord a while. I've been praying a lot, reading my Bible. I'm feeling I've never felt better. I've never felt stronger. So I think I'm going to go out to a strip club and just see if I can just share the Lord Maybe, maybe funny to, you know, the dancers come over, tuck a little gospel tract in there, and, and hey, this will be a great outreach. No, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you know there's going to be temptation. But if you follow God, still sometimes it's going to, it's going to blindside you, it's going to be there. But this prayer is that God would strengthen us to not give in to temptation. And furthermore, that if he would lead us, we could avoid it every chance we get. We could stay away from situations that might present problems for us. Deliver us from the King James says evil, and this is a better translation, the evil one. We don't know specifically whether it's referring to Satan or just a person who might be evil, but either one is certainly true. God, keep me away from anybody that wants to destroy me. Keep me away from people that would trip me up and mess me up. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And there are some people who believe that here in Matthew, doesn't appear in Luke, that, that this was added on by the church as something they would close the prayer for. But um, I, it's in the manuscripts that I respect the most, so I think it's probably there. And it's really just a statement of saying, God, what I've been praying, you're entitled to it. You're entitled to be the Lord. Now, looking at this prayer, again, two things that just jump out at me about it, and then we'll move on. One of them is prayer is basically asking for things. But secondly, look at what he's asking for. For the most part, he's asking for huge spiritual victories. He's asking prayers that are, that are so much deeper and heavier than the prayers that we typically pray. And this isn't to say that God doesn't want us to, to pray for those small things. But if you look at his prayer, only one thing is at all temporal, and that's give us this day our daily bread. And we don't even know if he was for sure talking about physical bread or if he was talking about spiritual bread, the manna that comes from heaven. At any rate, if he was talking about God 
I need some Wonder Bread to eat tomorrow, then still that's a small part of this prayer and everything else, they're huge things. God's kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, forgiveness, you know, the, the glory of God's name. I mean, these are big things. And I, one of the things that just blew me away when I, for a long period of time, just went through all of the prayers of the New Testament, I looked at them and go, wow, these are a lot different than the prayers that we pray. Because it's an awareness of, of a level of need that we're not even conscious of. It's, there's nothing wrong with praying for someone who's sick. But how much more, if I'm sick, and, you know, if I have a little cold or something like that, I always have people, oh, we're praying for you. My back's out a little bit. Oh, man, Dave, we're really praying for you. You know, that's great, but I'll tell you something. If I have the worst cold in the world and my back has me hunched over, I can't stand, I can't walk, I can't sit, you know what? I have much greater needs than that. Like the prayer that Paul prayed that, that the Christians would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. Now, if you're going to pray for me when I have a cold and when my back hurts, great, I appreciate it. But let that be a reminder to you to also pray for those greater needs that we have. You know, as we're praying for our kids in the morning to do well on a test, let's make sure that we're also praying that they hear the voice of God, that they see him, that his characteristics and qualities are being built into their lives. That all we're doing isn't asking, like a, the example I gave on uh, two Sundays ago is if you come in the White House and the president says he'll do anything for you, and so you ask him for a free postage stamp. It's, can't you think of something greater that the head of the free world could do for you than that? And I feel sometimes when I look at my own prayers, if I analyze them, I just go, i got to be able to do better than this. If he says, I will give you whatever you ask for, Whatever you ask, I'll do it. And this is the best I can do. God help me to find a parking place at Home Depot so I don't have to walk all the way across the parking lot when the walk would do me good. You know, it's just, it's, a, it, it's something that I notice about this prayer. And then he tacks on the end, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A trespass, the word that's used there means to fall to one side. It's when someone kind of gets tripped up and stumbled. And he's saying when that happens, you ought to forgive because it's going to happen to you a lot and you want to be forgiven. Now, people have written entire books on what this could possibly mean because it sounds like, if you read it on the surface, if I don't forgive other people, then God won't forgive me. And... You go, well, come on, it can't mean that, can it? Well, my attitude is, probably not. But what if it does? What if I get up here and give you this big explanation, twisting Greek words around and everything, to make you feel like, oh, it doesn't mean you're, you know, you can't, if you're a Christian, you have to forgive people. It just means that it's going to affect your relationship with God or something. What if I pitch something like that to you, and it turns out God just meant what he said? So I'm not taking any chances. I don't know what he means. I, my gut tells me that it's not that if there's one person that I refuse to forgive, then I, I go to hell. I don't think that's what it means. But just in case, I just try to forgive all I can. 
because, and probably, honestly, frankly, what he's probably saying is, if you really are a person who understands what it is to be forgiven, then you will be a forgiving person. It may take time, you may have your own way of doing it, but basically, somebody who really understands that they've been forgiven will forgive, and so as a result, do we forgive so that we'll be forgiven? No. But what we do when we understand how much God has forgiven in us, as we look at that, and when I get irritated with someone else, it really helps for me to think of all the things that I've done in my life for which my Lord forgave me. And when I see that, the things that you've done against me don't seem like that big of a deal. And it's a lot easier to forgive, and that's probably what he has in mind. Then he goes on to the next spiritual discipline. He's covered ministry or service, social work. He's covered prayer, and now he says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly." They would fast, that was a big deal to them, but they always wanted everyone to know they were fasting. It doesn't say if you fast, it says when you fast, and uh, I believe that this is something that everyone as a believer should give it a crack, unless you have some medical reasons why you can't do it. It's just a healthy, good thing, but you don't fast because you want to lose a few pounds. You know, you don't, you don't fast because, like, I, I heard a story the other day about a a uh, homeless person who was just really, really skinny and, and frail looking. And, and she was down on the streets at, at Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And this very wealthy woman came out with all these boxes. And this poor little shriveled up lady said, ma'am, I haven't had a meal in four days. And the lady said, boy, I wish I had your willpower. <laughs> but that's not the idea. <laughs> that's not the idea. The idea is, will you deny your flesh in order to have your spirit fed? Would you be willing to just say, you know what? I'm just going to take a period of time, and I'm not going to eat. And the time that I would have spent eating, maybe I'm going to spend it in prayer for some of my friends or for the church or for the lost. Maybe I'll spend that time just reading the word of God. He says, if you do that, well, he says, when you do that, so it's assumed that we should at some point, then... He says, don't let anybody know. Now, it's kind of hard because people are constantly offering you stuff. And, you know, if they're going, hey, box of donuts, and, you know, then if you go, oh, no, I'm fasting, they feel like really bad. But also now you look, oh, you're fasting. And so you have to be careful. It's a good idea sometimes to maybe be away when you're going to have a time of fasting. But it shouldn't, I remember a few years ago, it was a big deal with church youth groups. They would have a big all-day fasting party, and they'd give, money, they'd give money to feed a homeless or whatever. And then at the end of the party, they had this huge pig-out pizza you know, celebration. That's really not the idea. The idea is that I'm willing to give up certain things, even food, deny my flesh to show that what I really need is to grow in my spirit. I believe that when you're going through certain situations, when there are certain spiritual struggles, that's a great time maybe to set aside a time to fast. 
And you need to use practical sense, be in good health, make sure you drink plenty of water. If you're, you know, have a blood sugar problem or something, you need to watch that. But at the same time, to just be able to say, I'm, I'm letting go of my flesh for a period of time, to really focus in on God and make it a private thing. Don't look all haggard and everything. Can't wait for people to, you know, ask you, well, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? Oh, no, I'm fasting. Wow. No, he goes, don't do that. That's what they would do. And then in the area of giving, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's laying out this contrast of people who take all of their energy and resources and direct them toward what they have here and now, who say, boy, I want to get some stuff. I want to accumulate some assets. And then maybe one day, hey, you know, when I get my big mansion, I'll let the kids from the church come over once in a while. Or when I get my, my race car, I'll give people rides and maybe share with them about the Lord or something. But the idea is, am I going to spend my time, my energy, my money trying to get more things here? Or am I going to spend my time, my energy, my money here on the earth in order to have treasure in heaven? Now, a lot of times people think that the treasure in heaven is, boy, I'll have a lot of fancy crowns. Or, man, I'll have a huge mansion when I get to heaven because, boy, am I living in a dump here and now. That's not the idea. When you get to heaven, you're not going to care what kind of house you live in. You're not going to care what kind of crown they give you. You're not going to care anything except you're going to look around and look for familiar faces. You're going to look and make sure your kids are there, your friends are there, your family is there. And imagine getting to heaven and seeing people who are there because of you and your witness. Boy, that's a treasure. Because then that's all that matters. The, the lamb is all the glory when we get to heaven. It's not any glory about us. We have an opportunity to contribute and invest in people going to heaven. And that should be huge to us. That should be something that, see, anything that we get here and now... Even if you get it, you don't want it. And if you get it, thieves will steal it, break into it. Moth and rust decay it. Treasures in heaven will be there. And that comes by us serving God and ministering to his people and taking every bit of our time and our money and our resources that we have and figuring out how could God get some good out of this? How could this be used to be significant for him? Not to see how much stuff we can get while we're here. As Rodrigo was saying, he spent a lot of his life worshiping a piece of wood. And maybe a lot of people don't worship a piece of wood. But what else do we worship? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's why it's a big deal. John said, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As he goes later on, he talks about you can't serve God and money. And so if we decide to live for material things, we've made a choice. And you can't have it both ways. It just doesn't work that way. Your treasure is either going to be in heaven or it's going to be here. And he doesn't even say, you know, he doesn't even say, 
make sure that your treasures here, you have them in the right perspective and you don't take them too seriously. He specifically says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Now, in our culture, we're all so blessed. We're all so wealthy. David Gregory is here, one of our missionaries from the Ukraine, and, and he could tell you what people live like there. And the most poor of us is a billionaire compared to some of the people that he is ministering to. And yet, you know, where do you draw the line? You have to hear from God. God says he's given us all things to enjoy. So Jesus isn't saying you can't have anything. You can't own a house or you can't have a car or you can't have more than one set of clothes or something like that. But the idea is, where's your heart? And you'll find more and more that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. And that's what he says. That which you invest your time in, as I've said before, if you want to check where your heart is, look at your to-do lists. Look at your day timer. Look at your checkbook and your credit card statement and see where you put your time and money and energy. And where is it? Well, that's where your heart is. Like it or not, it may be that you're wasting 80 hours a week at work and you hate it, but you're doing it anyway. If that's where you're spending your time, that's your heart. You're just giving your heart for something that may not even matter to you. But we need to put our heart where our treasure is because they go together. You just can't have it any other way. And so Jesus is telling them, don't get the idea like some of these hypocrites that you can just go for it here on the earth, all you want, get as much as you can. Oh, and still, you know, in your heart, you're serving God. No, you're going to lay up treasures someplace. It's either here or there. And I suppose it's on a continuum in a way. But let's submit ourselves to the Lord in such a way that we're moving in the direction of making more investments in heaven than we are on the earth. There are a lot of guys who work hard their whole lives to achieve, and then they start to, as they get older, find out how little that stuff means. And a few thieves come in and get chunks of it, and, and moth and rust is starting to destroy it. And so then they decide, you know, I'm going to change things. And I've seen God use some guys who spend a great part of their lives trying to get rich. And then when they discover what a blessing it is to, to make a difference in the lives of people who can be in heaven, can be treasures to your account as a result of something that you did or someone that you might have helped, there's no greater privilege, no greater pleasure that comes from anything on this earth than it comes from that. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, literally if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil, your whole eye will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon or money. So in the context of talking about where your treasure is, he says, he uses the illustration of the eye. And he says, everything that happens kind of gets processed through your sight. Your eye is the only hole in your body that lets light in, really. And as a result, that light, by reacting in your nervous system, can direct your whole body what to do. But that eye, if it's bad, if it's evil, it's amazing how much it can do to the body. It's 
think of it as when you see someone who's in need and, and God just touches your heart for them and you want to reach out to them. It's amazing. You want to do anything you can to make a difference. But at the same time, if you allow your eye to look at something that's destructive, that's, that's sinful and evil, next thing you know, your whole body's doing bad stuff. What you look at and what you allow to come in, what I allow to become a part of me in terms of input, determines what the rest of my body does. And by saying if your eye is single, he's using that in connection with, you know, if, you have, if you're cross-eyed or you have astigmatism or something like that, it's hard to do things because you look out there and there's two of everything. And it's moving, and you don't know which is the real one. It's confusing. And he's saying, if you try to serve God and mammon, if you say, I'm going to be a great Christian and a wealthy person, then you're trying to do two things. You've got this vision that's messed up, and he's going, you need to be focused. You need to see things in light of reality, of who God is and, and what he values and what matters to him. And then everything else follows along with it. Now in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's a huge command to tell us not to worry. Don't be anxious. The old, in the King James it said, take no thought. But a better translation is to say, don't have anxiety about things. Don't worry about them. And basically, though, here as he lays it out, he, he's saying, if you're worried, then you don't trust God. He said he's going to take care of you. Will you believe him? I had a friend call me yesterday. Hadn't heard from him in years, but he was involved in a business situation. And it looked like it was going bad, and, he, and he, this, this contract was going to get his business out of trouble. But the job got canceled, and he was, he, he's been suicidal. He's been just really struggling. And for me to tell him, you know, God is going to take care of you, he really didn't want to hear it. I, I think he did and he didn't. He also kind of wanted me to intercede on his behalf with the person that he was trying to do business with. And I could hear that anxiety in his voice. And it's an awful thing. A guy who has a lot going for him, he's a gifted guy. He was always very talented, uh, uh, has a, just a magnetic personality. And here he is. He's ready to quit living over money. And God says, if you trust me, 
You don't have those anxieties. You don't need to do it. And so for us, anxiety, when our blood pressure goes up, when we get under stress, it's an idiot light on our dashboard warning us, you're not trusting God. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. God's going to take care of you. He knows what's happening. We saw that earlier. He knows all of your needs before you ever tell him. So don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or your body, what you're going to put on. Today, we have enough credit that usually we can eat and drink and get clothes, or we have enough clothes, or people will give it to us. But it's interesting, I was reading this in the Greek, and where it says, don't take thought for your life, the word for life there is suke. Same word a lot of times that's translated soul, the immaterial part of you. It's your mind, your will, your emotions. It's from where we get the word psychology, it's studying someone's suke. And sometimes when we may not be worrying about physical things, at the same time, we may have huge worries about, you know, who am I? Where am I going? Am I going crazy? Is my mind okay? Do I? It's, it's a huge industry nowadays with people who are so worried about their suitcase that they're going to get professional help to try to get it fixed. Now, I'm not saying that that's never necessary, believe me. There are people who definitely need professional help. And if you're one of those, I will tell you. But for, for most people, we're sitting here going, oh, no, is something wrong with me? What are they thinking about me? Why are they saying? And we're worrying about something that we can't change. We can't predict it or read it. It doesn't really matter anyway. If God's going to take care of your clothes... If he's going to get you something to eat, he's going to take care of the immaterial part of you, your emotions, your mind, your will, all of those things as well. So he says, don't worry about it. The birds, they're not worrying. God takes care of them, and you're way more valuable than they are, no matter what the tree huggers say. And which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to his stature? Can you make yourself taller by worrying about it? Or there are two ways that this might be signifying. One would be, can you make yourself taller? The other one is, can you make your life longer? And you can't. You can't make yourself taller. You can't make your life longer. You can try, but most people who obsess on it, it just doesn't happen anyway. I remember years ago, a guy who was just desperate to become an L.A. cop. And yet they had a height requirement and he was too short. And so he tried everything to make himself taller. He hung himself in a harness and that was actually on Andy and Mayberry with Barney one time, but, but this actually happened for real. The guy hung himself thinking that his joints would stretch out, and then finally he was still about an inch and a half too short, and he had his wife beat him over the head with a board so that his head would swell up and maybe he would be tall enough. He came out, this is a true story, he came out about a half an inch too short, and it's kind of a comment on the LAPD that they heard the story and said, that's our kind of guy, and they changed the rule, and he became an L.A. cop. <laughs> but really, by worrying, I, I can't make myself taller. You know, I can't look and go and say, oh, man, I, you know, what if this thing goes bad with Kobe? I mean, and you got Malone, you got this great, with Shaq. I, if I could just grow a foot and a half... I think I could be the fifth starter, or I could be the first guy off the bench, you know, now that Ori is gone, and I, no, you know, I could worry about it all I want, I could dream about it, I could pray about it, but the fact is, I'm not getting taller, I'm actually, as I get older, I think I'm getting a little shorter, and gravity or something, but he's saying, 
All this worrying, it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't help. You can't even change your height. Something simple like that. One time I was speaking years ago up in Calvary Chapel, Grass Valley, and I was speaking on worry. I think I was in this passage, and a man came up afterwards to me, and he goes, you know, you said that worrying doesn't do any good. I can prove you're wrong. And I said, oh, okay, how? What's the deal? He goes, everything I ever worry about, it never happens. (laughs) I said, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. But he likens it to Solomon and says, look at the flowers. They're more beautiful than Solomon who arrayed himself. Solomon could have anything he wanted. And yet in all of his fancy outfits, he never looked as good as a flower. And if God's going to clothe the grass that just is going to be blown away the next day, how much more is he going to take care of you? So don't worry. These are the things that we do worry about. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Those are the concerns of a person whose eyes are set on the things of the earth, on things of the flesh. And he's driving the point home. You know, those aren't the important things. Those are going to be taken care of anyway. But for your focus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be taken care of. Put first things first. I read a book quite a while ago, and I think it was probably, it was one of Stephen Covey's books. I think it was the one called First Things First, but he gave the illustration where he said a guy got up in front of a crowd one time, and he took a bunch of gravel, and he poured it in a, in a um, bowl, and then he put water in, and, then he, and the bowl was full, and he had a bunch of stuff left over, but then he dumped everything out, and he took the big rocks that he had and put those in first, then the smaller rocks, then the sand, then the water, and it all fit. And it's so true that when we put the important things first, it's amazing how much the rest of the stuff gets taken care of. If you look at the list of things that you need to do tomorrow, and you pick the most important ones, like spending time with the Lord and, you know, things like that, and you do those first, you'd be amazed how much of the rest of your day is left. But if you allow your, you know, if your first priority is to look for that thing you've been checking out on eBay or to, you know, enter a few of those contests or to just for the fun of it, just read all your junk email or, or flip through that catalog that just came in the mail, things that no one ever knew existed. And it's amazing. Next thing you know, your whole day is gone from doing dopey little things. And Jesus is saying, no, put God first. As he prayed in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you and I would do that, if we together would just say, you know, I'm going to at least do one really important thing tomorrow. I'm going to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. You'd be surprised how much of the other stuff would take care of itself? How many of the other problems would solve themselves? How God would provide for us in ways that we didn't even expect? Seeking first the kingdom. So he says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. Basically, you know, you have enough to do right now. Don't focus on what's going to happen tomorrow. Tonight, church is out. We're going to be finished in a moment. You have a little bit of time. Can you think of anything to do that's really important, that's really going to matter? 
Can you think of something that might be more important than some of the things you right now have planned on doing tonight? Can you think of, okay, how quick can I get home because there's something on TV as opposed to, I wonder if I just look around the church, if I'd see somebody that I could just slap on the back and tell them hi or give them a hug or ask them if they could use some prayer. Put that first. You'd be surprised how good the rest of your night will be, how good the rest of your week will be. And that's what Jesus is teaching in this whole chapter here of chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, get your priorities straight. Don't show off for people. Live for God. And if you put him first, it's amazing how much else he's going to do. It's amazing when you make a decision that goes against maybe what your own personal desires are, your own personal flesh is, how sometimes God's going to bless you in a way that's much better than if you had been living for it. I'm convinced. I, I have friends who have lived their whole lives basically trying to accumulate things. And for me, made a decision a long time ago, going into the ministry, probably going to be broke my whole life. You know what the crazy irony is? We've had times when we were broke. But God's blessed us so much. We have a beautiful house. God's given us anything we could possibly ask for. I really feel like, though maybe not on paper, but in reality, we're so rich. And we didn't even try. And that's when it's great. Because when you've been blessed and you weren't even trying, you don't have to worry about losing it. You know, you didn't work for it. You worked for God. He's going to bless you. Then whatever you have, it's just frosting on the cake. It's just God giving to you. And then if what he gives you, you give back to him, it continues to multiply. God does that for us when we put first things first. When we don't, oh man, as much as I've been blessed by serving God, at the same time, I'd hate to see when we get to the judgment, when the Bema seat is rolled out and I find out how much of my time I wasted, how much of my time I focused on things that really couldn't have mattered much. Oh, time years ago, and I don't do it anymore, but just polishing a car, shining up my motorcycle. And if you have something like that and you do that, that's fine. Do it with the Lord, enjoy him. But to me, I, I think, I know people who have airplanes and boats who spend way much more time working on them than actually using them. It's amazing. But if we could see the whole timeline of our life and saw how much time did we spend doing things that didn't matter, I think we'd hang our heads in shame. But we can change. It can be different. We don't have to be like that. We can go to God every day and say, God, what's important for me to do today? What is it that you want to do through me today that's going to matter for eternity, that's going to lay up treasure in heaven? Let's pray. Well, I'm sorry for being late. Lord, thank you for your word, your truth, and your provision. God, help us to know what first things are so we can put them first, that we can seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And then all the blessings that you throw our way, we'll try to enjoy them. We'll try to be examples of how good you are. But help us to always put you first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.